The materials provided are for information only and do not constitute as an offer. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors. Neither Zach or Jack are financial advisors. The information contained in this podcast episode has been compiled with considerable care to ensure its accuracy at the date of publication. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made to accuracy or completeness. We shall not be responsible for any consequential effect, nor be liable for any direct, consequential, incidental, indirect loss or damage, however caused, arising from the use of, inability to use, or reliance upon any information or materials provided on this podcast, whether or not such loss or damage is caused by us. Links to third-party sites are provided for your information only. The content and software of these sites have been issued by third parties. As such, we cannot be responsible for the accuracy of information contained in these sites, nor be held liable for any loss or damage arising from or related to their use. Investors should be cautious about any and all crypto asset and investment recommendations and should consider the source of any advice on crypto asset selection. Various factors, including personal or corporate ownership, may influence or factor into an expert's stock analysis or opinion. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual crypto assets before making a purchase decision. In addition, investors are advised that past crypto asset performance is no guarantee of future price appreciation. Do not invest money you cannot afford to lose. All investments come with a degree of risk. Hi, Jack. Hello, Zach. How's your day going? Uh, it's going well. I just defended the practice of VC investing. You know, I, I think you can maybe guess who in the Bitcoin SV space is not such a big fan of the practice of venture investing. I think I did a good job of defending uh, what it is we at least in part do. And so look forward to having that come out. It's always nice to you know, have a little bit of on mic time before we start rolling again. Uh, we have a really fantastic guest today. Uh, Zach, I'd love for you to give him a proper introduction. Yeah. So, um, you know, we first came across uh, Harley Bassman on the Macro Voices podcast. I think we've mentioned this podcast several times before. It's a, you know, Jack and I are a big fan of it for kind of learning more about know what's happening outside the world of crypto and blockchain uh, a lot of you know very smart contrarian guests uh that come on and the host is also fairly opinionated himself recommended to any of our listeners looking to kind of venture outside the crypto and blockchain ecosystem and yeah i've heard a couple episodes with harley and just always was like wow i really hope you have the opportunity to talk with this guy about all sorts of things and then i saw that he put out a piece on bitcoin and you know despite being a self-identified, you know, bear on Bitcoin, I think we actually have a lot in common. So I look forward to discussing, you know, those differences and commonalities today uh, with Harley. So Harley, thanks for taking the time today and joining uh, the podcast. Ah, good morning. Great to be here. Thank you very much. So I think our guests would love to learn a little bit more about your background and perhaps after that, how you first kind of heard about Bitcoin and kind of what what your uh, what your views on Bitcoin are? Sure. Um, well, uh, I'm a Wall Street veteran. I was in real 26 years. Ran the mortgage department, option department. So basically, you know, fund derivatives. I spent some time at Credit Suisse after Merrill Lynch imploded, and then moved to California, where I was at Pimco for a while in their hedge fund group. And uh, the last few years, I've been living in Laguna Beach, and I publish a um, episodic commentary on macroeconomics, trading, and stuff, which you could find on my website, quebecstimaven.com. Uh, if you'd like to be on my mailing list, just ping me an email and I'll, I'll add you. It's all free. And indeed, I did write about Bitcoin um, almost three years ago. You could find it on my website. It's called Tulips for the Masses and dated December 5th, 2017. So, uh, Harley, we'll link to your uh, your piece in the show notes. But you know, do you want to give us a kind of a quick summary of the the piece for Tulip for the Masses, and you know sure. how how you first discovered Bitcoin, and then how you kind of got to you know the point where you're writing a piece on it? I uh, well, you know, Bitcoin. I mean, I, I break it down to two components. There's the blockchain technology, which I'm a fan of. Um, although it's actually rather clunky and slow, the, 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 the concept of, of, of secure transaction communications is a clever idea. And if I could buy stock in, you know, 
Bitcoin Technology Inc., I would do that. The separate idea is the actual coin, which I am, I'm not a fan of. I don't own it. I suppose I wish I did buy it a long time ago. And uh, it, it you know, clearly attracted my attention when it started to make its run from a few thousand up to you know nearly 20,000. My gripe with Bitcoin really is, is that, um, aside from the clunkiness of, of blockchain itself, is, is the fact that it's, I'm not sure who's going to use it exactly because we already have a, a, have a currency. And I think that its primary use is probably mostly illegal. And if you look at, I mean, it's, I looked at this a while ago, the list of, uh, it's public information, I guess, how many accounts there are and how much Bitcoin they have. You know, it's more than an 80-20 rule. It's like a 98-2 rule where most of the money is in very few accounts. I suspect those accounts are either A, illegal or B, uh, the the uh, the key has been lost um, in, in in some trash compactor where some sad person is trying to go and find it again. I do think Bitcoin actually is a terrific idea for like you know a Nigeria or a Venezuela, where there's a government currency controls the currency is relatively worthless and uh, it's a great way to store value. But if you look at those numbers, and this is a few years ago, so it may have changed. Is that you have many 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 accounts out there that have very small fractions of Bitcoin. And um, for them, it's a public service. But for the ordinary person, I'm, I'm you know, I'm not quite sure. I view it more as a, more as a casino. Could, could Bitcoin go up in price again? Could it double or triple? Of course it can. I, I mean, and look, look at Tesla. Is that where I want to put my money? Um, no. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not a gold bug per se, although I do own gold personally. I think that gold, gold is not an asset. It doesn't throw off currency or it doesn't throw off income. Gold is an alternate currency. And if you look at what we're doing in Western society now with the you know, MMT and QE Infinity, basically in all the G7 countries, I kind of like owning an alternate currency that has a relatively fixed amount. Bitcoin offers that. And in that sense, it's kind of similar to gold. And so in that sense, I can, I, I can be a buyer of it. My concern, though, is I think that eventually governments will go and control it, and, it, and, and then it becomes more problematic. And I do think that, uh, I'll give away the ending to my piece, that I think Bitcoin is basically, we're talking the currency now, the, the actual coins, not the technology. I think Bitcoin's an act of war against a, um, a civilized country, and at some point, uh, countries will shut it down. Yeah, so I think I think with the sort of conventional understanding of Bitcoin, you are spot on. Now, let me, and you don't have to take my word for it, of course, but just so that we can sort of set up kind of like maybe a different set of terms for the rest of the discussion, let me sort of explain, and, and they're related, what I, would, what, what I would consider to be sort of the two big misunderstandings around Bitcoin. And what are those? The first is that blockchain technology is highly inefficient. That is sort of the prevailing wisdom. And it comes from, I think, the fact that the sort of leading blockchains are extremely inefficient. So this would be Bitcoin BTC. This would be Ethereum. You know, these are networks that are extremely limited in terms of throughput. And as a result, they have extremely high fees. The second myth is that Bitcoin is excellent for illegal activity because it is not, you know, people use terms like uncensorable, censorship resistant, unstoppable, decentralized. Uh, and I think that for the most part, those are basically all wrong. So our contention is that Bitcoin, the reason it was created in the first place and the reason we think it will ultimately be valuable Although we think that you know, the form of Bitcoin that is most likely to achieve this is not Bitcoin BTC, but Bitcoin BSV. We can discuss that later on if you'd like. But the reason we think Bitcoin was created and will ultimately be valuable is because it's highly efficient. In fact, you know, if one reads the uh, introduction of the white paper, what they'll see is that the, the sort of impetus for creating Bitcoin was... The, uh, the observation that the current payment system has certain limitations, which actually limit 
the minimum viable transaction size. And so our contention is actually that Bitcoin is most useful as a currency or at least as a network. And we can talk about you know, whether that network is more likely to be used for you know, the native currency Bitcoin or whether it's more likely to be used for some sort of tokenized version of you know, a central bank digital currency, something of that nature. But the reason that I think it's very likely to be used for at least one of those for payments is that the minimum viable payment size is much smaller. You know, we're already seeing on Bitcoin SV that the you know, fees today for a transaction tend to be on the order of one one hundredth of a cent. Uh, and so that's, that's a payment efficiency that can't really be matched by other players. And actually, ironically, the reason for this, in my view, there's sort of two main reasons. One is that Bitcoin transactions unbundle payment services. So with Bitcoin, it is possible to have purely, you know, just a transfer of value from one person to another without added things like, you know, payment protection, chargeback protection, uh, the various things that come from using someone like, you know, a visa to transact. And that's not to say that these services like Visa aren't great. I do think a lot of people will want those sort of protections when they're transacting. However, I think there are a lot of potential transactions, many of which are on the order of a dollar to a cent or perhaps a hundred or a thousandth of a cent, which will not actually desire those sorts of protections. And Bitcoin facilitates this by sort of allowing an unbundling process, which these other entities, because you know they're a company, and not a protocol can't actually legally accommodate. Now, the other reason why the minimum viable transaction size on Bitcoin is much lower, and this is where the real irony sets in, is that it's centralized. All of the information that's necessary, you know, to move Bitcoin around from one person or another, you know, from the network's perspective, is contained within this blockchain, this Bitcoin database, where, you know, in the traditional financial world, you're dealing with a lot of different ledgers. Uh, across the financial system, which need to do a lot to make sure that there are not inconsistencies. And that's why we see things like very long settlement times and why we see these high minimum transaction sizes. So that that would be, you know, my first contention is that actually Bitcoin uh, and blockchain is highly efficient. So the question becomes, and this relates to what I would call the second great myth of Bitcoin, why is it that Bitcoin BTC and networks like Ethereum are so inefficient. And to this, I would respond that it's actually the desire to be an extra legal form of money that has resulted in the efficiency. So Bitcoin is, you know, it's really sort of a database of you know, records of ownership of Bitcoin and data that's associated with those records. So there's, with the design as it is now, proof of work, you know, which has been sort of criticized as the reason why Bitcoin is so inefficient, is actually has nothing to do really with the efficiency of Bitcoin. What it has to do with is, you know, the economies of scale of being a Bitcoin transaction processor or miner. And so a Bitcoin transaction processor, you know, benefits significantly from economies of scale due to proof of work. And because of that, the miners ultimately become known to their local jurisdictions. And this actually, you know, my view is that this was the intention, you know, for proof of work. It's not actually a consensus mechanism. It was put in there to make sure that the people who are responsible for sort of managing the Bitcoin network, and particularly, you know, what, what is managing it, it's processing transactions and making sure that they're valid based on the protocol rules, uh, that these people need to be known to the public. Because that's the case, it actually makes it a very, very poor network to conduct criminal activities because all of the you know network providers of which i think currently there are probably three or four which control the majority of the network and i think that likely we're going to see single digits control the network uh, on an ongoing basis those are all very very uh, susceptible to government interference now the reason that's an important thing to consider the fact that bitcoin is sort of inherently because of economies of scale unfriendly to crime now we can start to understand why things have gotten to a place where it's highly inefficient. And that's because a lot of the early adopters of Bitcoin were coming from other cryptocurrency projects where the aim really was to be able to transact outside of the scope of government. 
that's been kind of the main goal of many cryptocurrencies for a long time. It, I would contend it was not the goal of Bitcoin. If you look at the Bitcoin white paper and you, you know, pay attention to, you know, I think some of the early voices in Bitcoin, you'll see that that wasn't the intention. But since so many of the early adopters wanted that to be the case, they have done things like strictly limit the amount of transactions that the network is able to process in order to keep those economies of scale minimized, or at least an attempt to do so. I would say they also haven't been very successful. You know, they have they've succeeded from a rhetoric standpoint in terms of convincing governments that they can't interfere with Bitcoin. They've failed uh, in practice to actually stop governments who realize that they can you know, interfere and do things like reassign Bitcoin from one person to another, you know, if there was a theft, or reunite someone with stolen or lost keys with their Bitcoin. All these things are technically possible. It's just the governments are temporarily hoodwinked about their capabilities. Well, why, um, why, why, why are you bringing up the concept that that wasn't the original intention for something to be used for criminal activity when clearly it has been? So, I mean, lots of things in life are not intended to go awry, but they do. And then you have a bad outcome. Oh, no, that's... It's a, intention was nice doesn't mean it's a good thing. No, it's a fantastic point. And what I would say to that is that the, the rhetoric convincing governments that Bitcoin is useful for crime also convinced criminals. And so criminals and, you know, obviously there's a lot of people with various, you know, political uh, views that would consider certain things that have been done with Bitcoin to be criminal that maybe others wouldn't or vice versa. But regardless of that, in terms of just strictly things that are illegal, Bitcoin was used for those and very unsuccessfully. You know, these operations have been shut down, you know, in a, in a lot of a lot of instances and people are unable to spend their Bitcoin because it's basically visible on a public ledger. And because of this, a lot of other coins have been developed, which criminals have been over time shifting their usage to. Uh, we just actually saw just, a, you know, this is something that's been ongoing, but there was an article I saw yesterday about sort of a ransomware as a service vendor that switched to Monero because they've you know, realized that Bitcoin is very poor for this kind of thing. And in fact, people, the people at the sort of helm of the project have known this for a while, but they've put forward that message. And then in the background, they've tried to push the technology in that direction. And so I would say Bitcoin is probably slightly more crime-friendly today in the form of BTC than it should be, but it's still not a very good tool for crime. And the cost of trying to make it crime-friendly is that they've destroyed the efficiency. Well, I would say this, um, away from crime, I'm, 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 I'm unclear of the value proposition of the entire concept. Number one, the idea that banks provide insurance is, it, it, it's, um, it's not a bug, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a feature. I mean, look how, I mean, I suspect that there are many, many people who have lost their keys um, and um, are now sad about that uh, or other or there's been other sorts of, of activity where someone might be able to go get their money back ordinarily, but, but they could not. Um, I might even look to what if we actually go through this process of, of this anonymous transfer system and Citibank goes and mails $900 million um, uh, to, to a bunch of, uh, of hedge funds, what they did last week. Um, anonymously, that money is gone, whereas at least now there's a paper trail to try and get it back. Um, so, so insurance, being able to work through an insured network is actually a good idea, not a bad idea, and I'll pay a small fee for that. Number two is, why do I need to go and have transaction sizes under a penny? I mean, no one transacts as a penny, even, even in Nigeria, probably. And number three is, we already have the system you're describing. I think it's called Venmo. So, like, why do I need Bitcoin? Sure, those are all great questions. So to the first point, I'm in a total agreement. I think a lot of the services that are currently offered in financial services, you know, they're great to have and people will want those protections. In fact, you can replicate a lot of those on Bitcoin. There's a whole Bitcoin scripting language that was deprecated on Bitcoin BTC that's now back up and running on Bitcoin BSV, where you can you know, and not, not to say that this is the only protection you have, but you can program in protections, you know, like multi-signature uh, schemes, things where you can maybe, if something goes wrong, revoke the transaction. 
all, all sorts of things are possible. And that's, and that's the average person, like someone like me, is a dinosaur is going to go and do this? I don't think no, so. No, no, no. But, but you might use an app which, you know, makes those features readily available to you. Just because you know, they're available to, to programming, you know, nerds does not mean it's actually viable. Well, I disagree. I mean, like, you use the internet, right? I do. Have you ever programmed on the internet? Not in quite a while. Okay. Well, my, my, my only point is that, you know, the, the work that developers do can scale to quite a wide audience. And so I think, I agree with you that people aren't going to be writing Bitcoin script for the most part for their own needs. But I think those scripts will be readily available the same way they are on internet applications today. And I actually think a lot of, basically what Bitcoin is, it's, it's a record keeping system. And the reason I think it's valuable is that in my view, because of its design, it is and will continue to improve and so it is now and will maintain uh, its status as the most efficient record-keeping system that we have. Now, obviously, you don't have to take my word for that, and I'm, I welcome any pushback. But that's why I think we see such small and decreasing minimum transaction sizes on these networks. And I think that, you know, as other sort of commercial record-keeping you know, and non-commercial record-keeping as that, as those entities that are you know keeping records start to understand, uh, mostly through businesses and startups that are you know occurring right now, being able to sell them on these cost savings in, in you know areas of life that are related to record keeping. As that happens, I think we're going to see continued use of Bitcoin, mostly through its blockchain. But I also think that uh, the the native payment system is always going to have an edge inefficiency because all the information is contained in one place where any sort of external payment system that's put on top of Bitcoin, you know, while that might have a lot of advantages and could end up being dominant, uh, I, I imagine that those are going to be slightly more expensive than transaction, transacting directly with Bitcoin. I don't know if I answered, I don't think I answered all your questions, but I'll just, I'll leave it there. I guess I'm trying to get to what is the key selling point here for someone like me because I like the insurance feature. Uh, I, I believe Venmo serve, I mean, serves as a reasonable substitute. But more importantly, I would say on one side you have, so I, mean, I guess you could say that eventually the Bitcoin blockchain technology is cheaper than banks, which is fair enough. Although I would argue that if Bitcoin blockchain becomes vastly cheaper, that banks will just say, okay, we'll lower our prices. And like, why does Visa have to go and charge you know, 2% on transactions? I mean, they clearly they, they overcharge by so much that credit card companies can rebate back to you half the half the profit. Sure, so, but why doesn't why doesn't Amex just undercut them then? I, I I do think that there are fundamental costs. It's a oligopoly. All right, that maybe, but I I think there are fundamental costs to record keeping in these businesses that come from the services that they have to offer. Not that those are bad services, but I don't think they're going to be able to accommodate some of like the machine to machine type transactions or sort of transactions that can be happening in the background that can be extremely small transactions. I don't think their current infrastructure is going to be able to handle that. Now, I do think that they can readily adopt Bitcoin uh, and not have to adopt Bitcoin, the currency, but just adopt Bitcoin, you know, the plumbing, the infrastructure. And which is, so which is not available for me to go and buy. I have to buy it as a proxy through the coin which brings up the second idea of Bitcoin as a, as a currency, uh, as a substitute for gold, let's say, uh, because it's relatively limited supply, it's fungible, all the things that define what a currency is. I'll, I'll, I'll say that Bitcoin okay, kind of has that, except for the small detail that a, a currency is basically deferred spending, it's stored value. I, I work X amount of hours and I and I don't spend all the money. I, I want to spend it tomorrow or next month or at my retirement. And if I go and look at all these various currencies that don't pay a, a coupon, a dividend, uh, which is you know dollar bills or euros or yen, um, I guess one could argue that, that that actually there is a positive carry to euros because it's not negative yield that your bank account would be. But but nonetheless, those currencies all have a, have a realized vol of 10, 12, 15 percent. I mean I mean the, the Russian ruble has a vol of 18 maybe, uh, Bitcoin has a vol of about 80. So why is that possibly a good idea to go and have my delayed spending 
stored in a vehicle that has such a massively high volatility. I mean, it has a volatility higher than the, 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 the S&P. But this is like a good idea to go and store my value such a volatile instrument. Now, I, I know the pushback. Pushback from the Bitcoin connoisseurs is, well, the ball is going to be all up, so I'm going to win. But, okay. That, then that wouldn't be my pushback. Then, then uh, and then I'd say, then you're gambling, which is fine. It's a free country. Go and gamble. But don't tell me it's a store of value. It's a casino to go operate in, which is fine. But it's, it's, it's not a store of value. It really is. Not, not, an 80 vol is not a store of value. Right. And, and I agree. Uh, I think people who are pitching Bitcoin as a store of value, they mostly do so because they've run out of anything else to pitch it as. It's obviously, you know, the forms that they're pitching are not efficient. Uh, they're not useful for things outside of, you know, holding and hoping the price will go up. So, uh, you know, we're aligned there. In terms of why would you want to transact in Bitcoin versus other currencies, today you wouldn't. I, you know, I think that's pretty clear. The volatility is too high for people to conduct regular business uh, using Bitcoin. Now, I do think there will be businesses where the amounts of money that you know, a customer is forced to hold in Bitcoin is extremely small and volatility won't be as much of an issue in those instances relative to you know, the amount. You know, if, if you only need to use $5 worth of Bitcoin annually to use some sort of application, then you know, you're, you're not going to be too concerned about volatility. It's something but it's not a big deal. Uh, but yeah, I think in order to take on any kind of like significant use within the financial system, other than purely as sort of a speculative asset, then you will have to see volatility come down significantly. So I agree. Now, fortunately, you know, Bitcoin in terms of the technology can accommodate other sorts of currencies tokenized on top of it. Uh, so I think, you know, Bitcoin, the plumbing, could be successful without Bitcoin, the currency, becoming successful. That being said, I do think that the native currency has advantages. And so if the plumbing is widely adopted, my expectation is that people you know, in various parts of the world or for various applications will find Bitcoin to be desirable relative to other options, and that that will ultimately lower volatility such that it's a more realistic competitor uh, with other forms of currency, but I totally agree with you that it's it's not even close to being there yet. Ignoring the the illegality possibilities, as well as the fact that I suspect many people don't uh, uh, claim their profits uh, 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 the IRS, which is basically how this whole thing's going to collapse someday. When the when the government says actually go after people for for not declaring their their, their gains on this thing, uh, that's going to be. But the government's been kind of they're letting China and Russia go and and do the dirty work of uh, cleaning this thing up. If Bitcoin's not legal tender, why do I even care then? I mean, what, the whole purpose of making something legal tender is to go basically make the currency, basically, you can almost say that a currency is how you define a nation more than anything else. And if Bitcoin it, it can't do that, where's the useful purpose for business? Why would they want to transact? So once again, I guess, if you're trying to bifurcate Bitcoin from blockchain, I'm on board with you. But once again, I'm not sure how I go make that investment. Yeah, sure. I mean, I hear you. And you know, we're a venture hedge hybrid, and so we, you know, we're betting on both. And I think that there are situations where only one pays off, and if only one paid off, it would be venture and not Bitcoin, the currency. I, I don't think that Bitcoin, Bitcoin could succeed without. You know the usefulness of the underlying plumbing. Okay, that being said, I, I guess I just I don't see I don't see it your way in terms of a currency makes a nation. I think we just we have too many examples of nations today and in the past which don't have their own currency and are still nations. You're talking about Europe. I'm talking about economies that you know function like using the U.S. dollar, or in the past, you know, nations that have used some sort of commodity money. I think there's a there's a long precedent that still is ongoing of countries where their citizens prefer some sort of alternative to what their governments provide, and they use that. 
We agree. If you live in Nigeria or Venezuela, Bitcoin is a vastly better uh, avenue to go and transact and, 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 and to store value. Even an 80 vol, I'd rather have that than you know, the uh, Venezuela peso. So we agree upon that. But, but I'm not sure you can actually build a global business on Venezuela and Nigeria. I agree, but I, I think the I think your total addressable market is actually much larger. Because I, you know, when the question I guess is when does Bitcoin become a better alternative, you know, for countries which maybe use a dollar economy and now prefer to use Bitcoin. And why might that be? It might be because the dollar is losing value relative to Bitcoin. It might be because Bitcoin, because of its efficiencies as a payment system, is just more effective to them. You know, I think in terms of economies that are relatively cash-based, I think that that is a highly disruptable form of going about, you know, one's financial life, you know, and with the sort of proliferation of mobile technology, I think that, you know, an efficient digital currency could be a great alternative to, you know, the many economies around the world that operate, you know, mainly through cash, but have a lot of, you know, mobile connectivity. So I think there's a pretty large total addressable market, but I'm a, I agree with you wholeheartedly that the very last, you know, set of individuals who I, I see using Bitcoin in a regular way for payments would be, you know, Americans and other governments that, you know, enjoy having a national currency that's widely used. Yep. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm just, I'm, I'm just looking for what is the, what's the key selling point? What, I mean, I, I don't think of me as being the average citizen. Um, so, so it really, it would be grossly unfair for me to ask what, I mean, what would make me use it? But nonetheless, I will say that, like, what would make me use it aside from just, you know, wanting to go and speculate that Bitcoin's going up? I mean, I'll, I'll jump in here, Harley. Sure. I, um, Sorry. So, so, so similar to the, uh, to the, to the internet, you know, I think the way you're going to use Bitcoin assuredly uh, is very unlikely to be when you're kind of even knowingly using Bitcoin. You're likely going to be using a company, maybe a financial company, maybe not. And they're going to be using Bitcoin to do a whole variety of record keeping, data storage or value transfer. So I, that's kind of the beauty of, you know, Bitcoin actually scaling and, you know, changing the fundamental like communication and value transfer infrastructure around the world. Similar to the internet, you don't need to know how it all works to use it and derive value from it. So it's going to be an uh, under the hood concept, kind of like the cloud. Yeah, in many, in many ways, you know, there's going to be a lot of, I think, you know, Bitcoin at scale is going to majorly disrupt the cloud infrastructure uh, that we have today. Uh, some people will still, you know, we, I, I, I still am bullish on the asset and the currency itself. Because fundamentally, it's it's really more of a commodity than a you know currency or money or gold, where there's a limited number of it. So it's fundamentally tied to the demand of the network. So the more people that want to transact and store data on the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, as a result of that, the value of that you know asset will rise with demand and go down when demand you know lessens. Today, we haven't seen really any meaningful correlation between demand to the network and price. It's all this, you know, largely speculative casino for almost any crypto asset. But I think kind of longer term, once we see kind of, you know, Bitcoin as BSV scale and, you know, become, I think, likely one of the world's largest databases, I think we'll see kind of, a, you know, a, a, it function, you know, more like a commodity than kind of a crazy speculative asset. And then maybe at that time, it could start to actually be used as a currency. But the, you know, the bet we're making is, is yes, it will likely be used as a currency, but it doesn't even have to for it to say appreciate or for it to be valuable to others. Well, from the, in, in, in that manner, I'm along with you, baby, 100%. I think it's a great idea. And I think the extent that your uh, fund could source those investment vehicles, it's a great idea. Uh, and I, I love that. Buying Bitcoin itself, I think, is foolhardy. Um, but 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 the under the hood. I mean, I, I, I can remember back when I had my first bank account. I mean, it was called a passbook account because they gave me a book, and banks were open only from 
you know, from, from 10 o'clock to 3 o'clock because they had to do two hours of bookkeeping in the morning and three hours of bookkeeping at night to go and actually do the thing all by hand. Uh, so the extent that we can now, you know, press little, little, little keys and send money around uh, is, is phenomenal. Um, and, and it's a technology I don't even see under the hood. So I, I think you are right in where things are going to go uh, in terms of efficiency. And yes, it really should not cost Visa or Amex one, two, three percent to go and process stuff. That, that's utterly insane, but it's an oligopoly. And if Bitcoin or blockchain breaks up that monopoly, God bless them. Uh, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's a public policy good. Fantastic. So sounds like we found, found some commonality there. And on that note, I would like to move on to something, you know, I've just been kind of dying to get your opinion on this, Harley, which is, you know, I, I, we're all kind of in agreement that, you know, BTC, the main version of Bitcoin is, you know, this largely speculative asset that, you know, we think is, is overvalued, but it could still potentially go up significantly more from here. So given kind of what's happening in the world today, as you put it, you know, uh, unlimited QE and kind of the, the craziness of equities markets, bond markets, uh, what is kind of your outlook on, you know, BTC as Bitcoin? And then also, you know, how do you see that potentially interacting with a version of Bitcoin that continues to scale and grow? So today, you know, almost no one really knows about Bitcoin SV, yet it's doing more transactions consistently than the main version, BTC, and, you know, growing and having more entrepreneurs actually building on the network. So curious to see how you kind of, uh, you think this will all play out in terms of, you know, asset prices. Well, I mean, you had to have, QE had to occur uh, in the beginning, uh, in 08, 09, Tim. Uh, the, the, the banking system blew up. Lots of villains behind that. No reason to rehash that nonsense. Um, I think QE, you know, two, three, four, infinity uh, has been, you know, I won't call it a great evil, but certainly a good idea gone awry. Um, and trying it again now with the added, you know, juice of MMT, which is happening. Um, it's happening faster than I thought, but it is happening. You're going to go and debase the currency. And that is a public policy good, hard to believe, but it is because we have too much debt. And the only way you get rid of debt is to default or inflate. And inflation is a slow motion default. As a country, we are unwilling to uh, encourage defaults. For whatever reason, uh, the invisible hand and uh, creative destruction, uh, th 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 those are out the window now for political reasons. So we have to inflate as our you know, alternate method to reduce the debt in society. And um, therefore, paper currency is dollars. Fiat currency will become worth less. Not worthless, worth less. Uh, you, there are people at MMT who believe you can. There's a brand new book out by a star of uh, MMT that basically uh, defines that you could print currency as fast as the uh, gap in the economy and that when you see inflation, you'll know you've done enough. Uh, I push back saying, one, um, no one can predict inflation. We haven't done it yet successfully. I'm sure it's going to start in the future. Telling the CBO to go and do it is just as foolhardy as anybody else. But also, even if we do get the inflation and predict it properly, I'm not sure what we're going to do about it. There isn't a government willingly significantly reduce spending once it starts. So I think that's also a, a crazy idea. So if you produce currency fast from the growth of the economy, you'll get inflation. And um, owning fiat currency is, is dangerous. So that means I want to own some alternate money. And what is money? Money is when you, the, the, the supply is controlled. It's fungible. It's portable. It's divisible. It's liquid. Those are the five things that define money. And I would say that Bitcoin, all those um, characteristics are contained in Bitcoin. And in some respects, actually better than gold because gold's pretty heavy to carry around. So is Bitcoin as alternate currency? Yes. As a store of value, it sucks, but alternate currency, yes. And if I believe that fiat currency is going to be, is, is intentionally being debased by Western governments, then in theory, Owning Bitcoin is a good idea. Uh, my, my, the problem I have is that it's unclear what the, there's, there's a much longer history of gold, the value of gold, the price of gold, gold versus other things, um, gold versus um, uh, real interest rates. There's, there's, it's, 
it's not the easiest thing to price gold, but there is some history to it. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is um, is it worth twenty thousand? Is it worth three thousand? I don't know. Um, that's it's it's more challenging. So the question is 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 Bitcoin actually a better place to be an alternate currency than gold? I'm not convinced it is. But if you want to go sell the idea that Bitcoin is an alternate currency in an MMT world, uh, you're more right than wrong. Uh, you're definitely in the right zip code. Well, I guess, Harley, you know, so you're talking, you know, you spoke largely about kind of how you see the fundamentals. I'm, I'm curious more what you think on kind of the near and medium term, you know, expectations. Uh, you know, speaking for, I think, you know, my, myself and I don't really have a strong view either way to say the price of, you know, BTC Bitcoin in the near term, but I have a, a very strong view over the longer term that it's going to, you know, go to zero or close to it. But, you know, kind of how, how we get there, how, how long it takes, that's something that I'm, you know, definitely not high conviction on and curious if based on what's happening in the world today, there's, there's a view that, that you have over the kind of near or medium term. Oh, I, I, I absolutely know if you want it. I'm, I, I am disturbed when I'm not going to name names, but you can probably guess who. Um, so I was talking about the value of Bitcoin is saying that, well, you have X amount of total value of stocks and bonds and this and that. And if you look at institutional portfolios, how much they have allocated to Bitcoin um, is microscopic. Therefore, if they just move half a percent of their assets to Bitcoin, um, that the, the, the value of Bitcoin would go to $100,000. I think there's a reason why institutions don't own Bitcoin <laughs> and that ain't going to change. But no, I, I, I have no idea what the right price of Bitcoin is. I'm not sure it goes to zero, frankly. Um, I just think that there are um, that uh, if it does go to back to the highs again, uh, it, it'll it'll do it as, as much as any other speculative asset can do it by you know demand. Also, what I'm curious about really is what is the actual effective float of Bitcoin? I suspect it's it's vastly smaller than people think, certainly than the advertised availability, and that's probably what contributes to its. Um, volatility. It is, it's just a very small float because so much of it is tied up or, or lost. I think it's a great question. And I think Peter Schiff actually makes a really good point here too, which is that you know until one cryptocurrency is established as you know, the clear market leader from a usage standpoint, and I think usage is much more important because I actually think the, you know, the network effect comes from usage not just ownership. It's very easy to sort of transfer ownership from one asset to another. It's not necessarily easy to move a business from one network to another. So I think until we see a network with very dominant usage, even the idea of Bitcoin as like a fixed supply asset is not really correct because we've seen just a real proliferation in terms of digital assets. You know, we're talking about, you know, another form of Bitcoin. You know, there are several prominent forms, really just three major forms, but you know, several forms that rank inside of the top 50 crypto assets. And you know, there's no shortage of these things coming out of the market, especially while there's still investor appetite for new networks. And there hasn't been any network which has you know, gained any kind of substantial usage such that you know, a clear market leader is established and there's no longer an incentive to sort of throw your hat in the ring. So I, I think even, you know, the float is one question, which I think people can maybe, you know, from a price standpoint, make into an optimistic point, but really in terms of this sort of larger digital asset, you know, market, I think we're, we're just seeing, we're, we're really seeing like more rapid depreciation in a sense than we are with the U.S. dollar. Is the reduction in the number of miners, is that a positive or a negative? I mean, I guess it can be a positive because it means that the cost of producing it is, 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 is becoming more efficient. Um, the profits are reduced. On the other hand, having fewer people means more risk of a bad thing happening because less diversification. I have a friend who used to be a miner. He doesn't mine anymore. He said, unless you want to put your computer next to a, a hydro dam in Norway, you really can't make any money anymore. Yeah, that's, that's totally true. Actually, the, to me, the mining profitability is downstream from price. I think people switch that around a little bit erroneously. It's a really the mining, Isn't that part of the security of it? You have so many miners, you have diversification. If I only had four miners, I'd be pretty sad to go invest in that process, right? Well, it's not necessarily 
the number of miners. The, to me, the security actually really stems from the fact that it's public and that everything that's done on the network is visible. That is the sort of core of security. Now, that's, that's a contrarian opinion in Bitcoin. Most people would say the security comes from you know, the amount of hash power defending the network. I think that view comes from you know, living in a mindset where like laws don't apply to you, which you know, is maybe a positive if you're doing criminal activity, but a negative if you're concerned about you know, criminal sort of computer sabotage sorts of things happening to your network. So I guess there's two, two points here. One is that the number of miners is not as important as the total hash power. You know, from the perspective that hash power is what secures the network, I would also disagree that hash power is what secures the network. To me, it's the fact that Bitcoin is public and exists in a world with laws, just like most businesses. If um, I only had one miner, would that be good? And it was public and everything. I mean, you know who they were. If I only had one miner, wouldn't that be dangerous? Well, that's a great question. I actually, so we wrote a book uh, about Bitcoin. One of our chapters was more or less like what would happen if there was only one miner? And our contention is that the economic forces around Bitcoin, it, it, you're not, it doesn't really matter how many miners there are, the economic forces are the same. And so Bitcoin rewards honest behavior just based on the way it's structured. So no, I don't think it would be a problem if there was only one miner. Now, a lot of people claim that decentralization is key. I think they're just flat out wrong. And I think that that's why they've made so many horrible decisions in terms of compromising on scale in order to, to achieve decentralization. Right, so if you have one, only one miner and North Korea decides to go and send one of their you know, viruses into it, or it could be Iran, or it could be Russia, or China, whoever, it could be any, Israelis, or anybody who are capable of doing it, actually, wouldn't that be problematic to have your whole system taken down in one shot? Sure, I mean, I, I could see, I definitely agree that like having multiple miners you know, adds robustness to the network. I, I don't think that we're likely to see um, only one miner. Why not? But I also think... I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, when I, when I got my MBA, which was quite a while ago, uh, they, you know, one of the classes spoke about how um, a single exchange is most efficient because and, and uh, for, for trading stocks and similar to how basically you, you end up with a, with a reserve currency of the U.S. because a reserve currency basically facilitates everything, everything, everything boils down, the costs all boil down when you have a single venue. And you do have, you know, I mean, so, so I mean, it seems to me that, that uh, you could end up with only a very few miners because of uh, market efficiency. I, I don't think that's likely because miners are really more like a business than like an exchange. And, you know, there's a reason why we don't have one business in the world that does all the business. You know, there's a reason why there's yeah, not really called Amazon. Any... Yeah. <laughs> all right. To me, it's, it's not a concern, but just getting back to, you know, the original reason we sort of broached the subject. Yep. Uh, yeah, I don't think that, so the having is kind of what people point to and say, okay, there's less Bitcoin being released into the economy. You know, yes, miners are adversely affected, but it's great because, you know, our stock to flow is improved. We're going to expect asset appreciation. And just to that point, I think it's, it's basically sort of absurd just when you look at the daily volume uh, and what percentage of that block reward, you know, what the block reward is in terms of percentage of daily volume, it's like 0.000 something percent. And so there, there's no reason to expect that there are the, the sort of dynamics of mining are really just downstream of like what speculators have an appetite for. Okay. What, where are interest rates in two years? <laughs> that, that's actually a fair question because that is my time frame uh, more or less for things um yeah I, I i have written about this concept for 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 a while now i believe demographics is the key driver to rates and inflation i believe that you've seen a 40-year decline in rates, and if you compare that to the labor force growth rate over that period, uh, that watch goes hand in glove. And on my website, I've shown charts about this for quite a while. And then what you've seen recently is this, is this significant reduction in the labor force growth rate uh, because the boomers are, are you know 
are retiring and the millennials are coming in, but not as quickly. What you'll see is that this process bottoms out in the next year or two and it starts to rise back up again in 2023 and then a lot more in 25, 27. Uh, as the boomers basically are being out of the system and the millennials come on in and they're working and they have household formation and they're buying the cars, the washing machines, the houses, all these things they got to buy. And the people that produce them, there's less of them because we've retired or died. And this basically drives up price rates and inflation. So we, we had the inflation prior in the 70s because you had the boomers coming into the economy and demanding goods and services from the prior generation, which was a much smaller generation of people. So more demand, less supply, prices up. Boomer generation coming in, down. Millennials coming in. So you're going to see, so you're not going to see interest rates, the 10 year rate, uh, above three and a half percent for the next, you know, call it three years. After that, I believe you will see, um, you could see much higher rates. The Fed can hold rates down if they want to, I guess, for a while. Uh, but but my, my, my view is that you'll the rates aren't, they're not going to go higher in three years, but they're not going up until then. Um, and so in that sense, that would be bullish for, um, for Bitcoin, for gold, for any of these alternate currencies, because the fiat currency pays no dividend. Pays, there, there, there's no opportunity cost involved in owning Bitcoin versus owning um, you know, cash in the bank or earning a, a coupon. So um, in that sense, you, you have found a, um, a, a, a value-add concept for, for, for crypto. Oh, that's, that's fascinating analysis. I'll have to look more into uh, your work to learn more. Harley, we, you know, we really, really appreciate your time. You've asked, honestly, just really fantastic questions. You know, I've always contended that for someone who isn't really, like, really deeply involved in crypto and kind of understands where, <laughs> basically where things went wrong and how we can get back to something that's actually valuable, the, the absolute correct position to have is to be bearish. And so uh, I think you've done a good job of <laughs> representing that perspective. And I think that uh, it's it's well justified, and I appreciate uh, the great questions and pushback. It, it's really fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you for your you had very good answers there uh, for a lot of this stuff. And uh, clearly, you guys are expert in in this field. And uh, you know, you have to know what you're doing, man. That's very true. <laughs> uh, Thanks for your time today, Harley. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs>